This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. President Donald Trump's impeachment trial heads toward an end on Wednesday, with senators all but certain to acquit him on charges of abuse of power and obstruction of Congress after narrowly rejecting Democratic demands for witnesses. Before a vote on four amendments on Friday, Minority Leader Chuck Schumer sought to clear up one uncertainty that's hung over the trial. Whether Chief Justice John Roberts, the trial's presiding officer, would cast a vote to break a tie. Here's Roberts' response. If the members of this body, elected by the people and accountable to them, divide equally on a motion, the normal rule is that the motion fails. I think it would be inappropriate for me an unelected official from a different branch of government to assert the power to change that result so that the motion would succeed. My guest is Frank Bowman, a professor at the University of Missouri and an expert on impeachment. His latest book is High Crimes and Misdemeanors, A History of Impeachment for the Age of Trump. The chief justice said it would be inappropriate for him to break any tie votes in a Senate impeachment trial. What's your take on his refusal to do that? I understand it from a couple of perspectives. I mean, one, he does not want to get himself as sort of the representative of the Supreme Court in the middle of uh, this ugly partisan fight. Um, and breaking a tie, on, particularly on these issues, would certainly be perceived as doing so. Equally important is the sort of pragmatic calculation here. He's going to want to, I think, husband his moral authority or the institutional authority for for occasions when it might matter. And, you know, to break a tie on a question of, say, witnesses in this case, if that had come up, I mean, Roberts is a smart guy. He can count. He knows that there's no way that President Trump is ever going to be removed. He recognizes, frankly, having listened to all the evidence, that the case against Trump is overwhelming on the facts already. Nobody except Trump's most ardent partisans believes otherwise. And in fact, one of the things you heard at the end from a number of sort of sheepish Republican senators was in effect, oh, well, okay, we don't need to hear more evidence because actually the case is already proven and additional evidence isn't going to prove it anymore, And which is, of course, the truth, right? I mean, that's the state of the evidence. So back to Roberts, Roberts knows that. He knows the evidence is powerful against the president. Then he knows that additional evidence, whether it's Bolton or anything else, is not going to change the political calculus. You're not going to get 20 Republican senators to vote the guy out. And so that being so, for what purpose would he expend his moral and institutional capital? One could imagine a circumstance where a chief justice believed that the president in the office was you know, deeply dangerous to the country and saw in front of him a trial where the outcome remained in doubt and hinged perhaps on the production of some additional evidence. And you can imagine, therefore, a chief justice who would be willing to step in and, and make judgments about the propriety of introducing that additional evidence. But Roberts is looking out at a landscape where he knows the result is completely baked in. Why should he expend the court's capital, his personal capital, in a futile gesture? Sort of where I land on that. I just also want to go through some of the Republican senators, some of their excuses, some people might call it, reasoning, other people might call it, for not voting for witnesses. Senator Marco Rubio, Republican from Florida, said 
just because actions meet a standard of impeachment does not mean it is in the best interest of the country to remove a president from office. If actions meet a standard of impeachment, should a president then be impeached and convicted? Well, I mean, this this raises a, a tricky point. I mean, and it's sort of an echo of the, the Clinton affair. In the end, Democrats' rationale for acquitting Clinton, indeed the rationale of, I think, some Republicans who voted for acquittal, was that Clinton had done bad things. He'd committed, indeed, uh, one or more felonies, but that the gravity of what he had done didn't require his removal. Indeed, the you know the best interest of the country suggests that he shouldn't be removed. I think that Rubio is making a somewhat inelegant version of the same argument. Now, and really, this is just sort of a terminological quibble. I mean, I would say, as somebody who you know spends time thinking about impeachment, that if you, as a senator, conclude that the president has committed an impeachable offense, that necessarily requires that you vote to impeach and remove him. But, you know, you can also recognize that the whole notion of what's at least a convictable offense is not only about the president's conduct, but it's also about the welfare of the country. And I think it's entirely within the Senate's purview to conclude that even though a president has done improper things, bad things on a single occasion, that the gravity of those bad things, when weighed against the other good things he's doing for the country, pushes in the direction of, of acquittal. I, that's why this is a political process. That's why, in large measure, the framers gave the decision to the political branches. And I disagree with you know Senator Rubio's assessment here. I think not only did the president do it, but the kinds of things he did here are of such gravity that it's hard to see how you can honestly conclude that A, he did it, and B, it's not serious enough to remove him. But that's at least closer to intellectual honesty than, you know, than the president's lawyers or, you know, the vast majority of the commentators on Fox News and, frankly, a number of the other senators who are walking around saying, well, he didn't actually do anything wrong. Now, that's rubbish. Of course he did. I mean, he did wrong. It was It's plainly proven. And the question really is, does that warrant removal or not? And, uh, you know, I think it does. I think any senator with, you know, any interest in the Constitution, the preservation of, frankly, the, the checks and balances, any interest in, you know, ensuring that the presidency doesn't essentially become, you know, a kingship, ought to vote to convict and remove this president. But, I mean, Rubio is at least closer to intellectual honesty than some of his some of his colleagues. One thing that has remained clear throughout this is that there won't be the votes to convict President Trump. So what implications does that have for future impeachments or for future attempts to rein in a president? That, I think, very much depends on a number of things, and one of them is the outcoming outcome of the 2020 election. Um, remember, of course, that the, the framers basically devised two mechanisms for removal of a president who is misbehaving or is underperforming. And the, one of them is impeachment, of course, but the other is elections. They originally thought about not having impeachments at all because they thought elect, some of them thought elections would be enough. 
But of course, they decided elections might not be enough. But they understood that there also was a relationship between the two. And if Trump escapes conviction in this case, given all the evidence, uh, and frankly, given the incredible efforts on the part of the members of his party to, to conceal the full extent of it, and then manages to win the election anyway, uh, that I think is profoundly troublesome is the mildest word I can come up with, because uh, not only in the short term will he, I think, feel more or less unbound to completely ignore Congress altogether, uh, but it creates a precedent going forward that we should all be very, very wary of. If, on the other hand, um, you know, the president and his party go down to a resounding defeat, then the impeachment will be viewed differently. The impeachment will be viewed as one mechanism by which wrongdoing by the president is exposed uh, and by which even if his party protects him, uh, the, the, the public has an opportunity to find out what wrong has been done and to respond electorally. Um, I, I, I think we should all be very, very afraid here uh, unless one is already bound heart and soul to, to Donald Trump, the the consequences of this acquittal followed by re-election uh, are very frightening indeed. When we look at the three times that presidents have been impeached, does it show that the framers set the bar too high to require a two-thirds vote in the Senate? You know, in retrospect, I kind of think so. I think we ought to. I think we ought to. Uh, I think we ought to be able to remove presidents a little more easily. Maybe not on a you know on a straight up majority, but vote. But uh, certainly, in the modern era, presidents could use a good deal more accountability, a good a good deal more personal and institutional humility. And one of the problems that with this whole imperial presidency that we've created over the last century or so, is that not only have we given presidents this vast, almost inconceivable personal power, but we've come to think of them as being, you know, once we elect them as somehow or other being indispensable, almost godlike, um, that they somehow they embody the executive branch in some almost mystical sense, and that to remove them is, you know, a cataclysmic calamity. It's not, right? I mean, among other things, um, you know, we now, you know, elect people on a ticket. One thing people, many people don't realize is that when the framers actually created impeachment, the, uh, the original mechanism for choosing president and vice president was that the presidency went to the person who had the most electoral votes and the vice presidency went to the person who had the second most, which led in the third election to having you know, John Adams be president and his biggest adversary, Thomas Jefferson, be vice president to predictable results. And if we now had that rule, uh, the, the vice president would be Hillary Clinton. Now, obviously, that didn't work very well. They, so they they changed it early on. You know, they, they, they amended the Constitution so that presidents and vice presidents run run together. But that being so, all, all an impeachment means is that we lose the individual at the top of the presidential ticket, and we get the person whom the president chose um, to be his second in command or her second in command, which is hardly a cataclysm. Uh, and we really ought to be 
much more ready to dispense with the services of any particular person. Right? Really, the, the the world does not end if we do that, and the democracy would undoubtedly be healthier if we had something a little closer to a parliamentary system. Not exactly what they have, where they can get rid of the prime minister simply with a vote of no confidence in parliament. Something a little closer to that wouldn't be a bad idea. But then let's be realistic. To fix to fix that problem would require an amendment of the Constitution, and that's you know pretty inconceivable. On uh, Sunday, Adam Schiff, the leader of the House managers, said about the Bolton information, whether in testimony for before the House, in Bolton's book, or in another form, the truth will come out. But should the House of Representatives now be calling Bolton to testify? You know, I'm, I'm kind of a, of two minds on that. I, I think it, I think it's useful. I think the, I think it will be useful for the House to continue to um, employ its oversight power to explore misbehavior by the president and the administration. That's what they're there for, in part. I mean, is to is to be. A, a check and an, uh, on on the executive and a, a vigilant overseer of what what goes on there. Um, so I think they should do that. On the other hand, what I think Democrats should certainly avoid doing is obsessing over what is now or will be on Wednesday. You know, a lost battle. Um, if all of this impeachment business is to mean anything from the point of view, not just of Democrats, but the, from the point of view of preserving you know, constitutional government. Donald Trump has to be defeated in November. That will be the event that would validate all of this and would represent an affirmation that the Constitution can work and that presidents will not be king. I think if Democrats become obsessed with trying to relitigate um, this this particular impeachment for month after month after month into the summer, they are doing themselves in the country a disservice. They've got to focus on other issues that concern the country, or perhaps even other areas of, of wrongdoing by Mr. Trump. That's fine. But in my view, they need to get to the business at hand, which is you know, choosing an appropriate presidential candidate, appropriate running mate, and focus on turning this man out of office uh, through elections. Thanks for being on Bloomberg Law. That's Professor Frank Bowman of the University of Missouri School of Law. His book is High Crimes and Misdemeanors, A History of Impeachment for the Age of Trump. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.